Good morning, church. So good to worship our God together. Thanks for coming through all the rain and nastiness this morning to uh, gather and sing truth and study God's Word. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and pull that out. We're going to turn to a number of different places, so just get ready. I'll tell you a few of those as we move along. We're in a new series called Connect with God. And so we're thinking about what does it look like to develop a relationship with God? What does it look like to grow and deepen in our walk with God? Can't think about that without considering the importance of at least a few things in coming weeks. So God's voice, the Bible, God's ear, prayer, and God's people, the local church. And so we're going to come to those in in kind of coming weeks, but we're starting really here because God's ear in prayer and God's people, the church, are both informed by this foundational importance of Scripture, God's written revelation of himself. And so this week we're asking the question, how do I connect with God in Scripture? And you've got a big idea there at the top of your notes, and it's this. Nothing is more vital for the Christian than to read, hear, and welcome God's word. Let me read that again. Nothing is more vital for the Christian than to read, hear, and welcome God's word. So you think, for example, about the life of Jesus. So we looked last week at the, the role of the Holy Spirit, for example, in the life of Jesus. Jesus' constant companion. We said what a friend Jesus had in the Holy Spirit. And so we saw that companionship there. But look at the role. Just think about the role of God's word in the life of our Savior, our Lord and Savior. It, it poured from his lips. He just naturally, reflexively drew forth from the resources of long meditation on God's word. He ended debates by appealing to clear, single statements in Scripture as though it's done. Once I quote this verse, the conversation's over, and this is the truth, and it's established. He said, he said, the scriptures cannot be broken. He said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Not one stroke of a pen of the Old Testament scribe will pass away until the whole book, the whole of the Old Testament is fulfilled. And so he was, he was wildly enthusiastic about the, the quality and the content and the truthfulness of the Old Testament. He, he quoted from the Old Testament. He gave unqualified affirmation to all of its parts, each of the three buckets that they put the Old Testament scriptures into, so the law and the prophets and the writings or the poetry. And he said, all of that is gold standard. All of that is God's word. He quoted scripture when he was in trial, when he was in temptations. He quoted scripture in his dying hour on the cross. According to Jesus, God's written word is more essential for our lives than food. And in that regard, he was just saying amen to what Moses said hundreds and hundreds of years before him. Man shall not live, Jesus said, quoting Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, But here's how he lives, by every word that comes from the mouth of God, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So nothing is more vital for the Christian than to read, hear, and welcome. And each of those are important. Read, hear, and welcome God's word. So here's the question. We're going to try to answer it in a few different ways. How do I connect with God in Scripture? Number one, read relationally. Read relationally. So if you would turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the late author and 
Christian statesman D. James Kennedy famously said, the most direct route to knowing God is knowing Scripture. We read to know God. We are invited into the knowledge of God as we study his word. Some of you have heard the story before about my relationship with my, my wife and how it all began. We, we knew each other. She, she lived in South Louisiana. My brother-in-law was pastoring a church down there, so I went down to visit. My sister introduced us. She did some matchmaking. We knew each other for a couple weeks. I asked her out on a date. We went to the First Chance Cafe right there in Donaldsonville, Louisiana, and it was off to the races. And so we knew each other kind of in the same city for a couple of weeks before I headed back to school in Dallas. And so we had a long distance relationship. So everything that I learned about my later on wife was learned through letters. It was learned through a long distance relationship. So we didn't have, we didn't have email. I don't know if email existed in 1994. If it didn't, we didn't know about it. We didn't have cell phones. And so we actually had these little things called envelopes if you're under 30 little envelopes and you actually put paper in it's anyway so we would write these letters back and forth and I would run I would I would go straight from class run back to the GLT on my way up to my room I would hit that mailbox with just absolute enthusiasm pop the thing open and every day there was something inside and it was just this bulging envelope of pages and pages of Paula telling me who she was what she was like, what made her cry, what made her angry, what made her happy, what her experiences were, what classes she was taking, how they were going, who her friends were. Everything I was learning, I was learning as I was just reading, hanging on every word, falling in love with a person who's nine hours away as I'm reading these letters. I didn't love the letter. I wasn't, it wasn't I had a relationship with the paper. It was the sense in which the letters brought her to me. The letters closed the distance. In the same way, that's what God's word does for us. We, we walk by faith, not by sight. We can't see him with our natural eyes. And so how does the relationship deepen? Letters. <laughs> He's given us. That's why Augustine said centuries ago, the scriptures are our letters from home. Read it relationally, not just for codes, not just for rules and regulations. Read it primarily because you want to know your God and he's revealing what makes him angry, what makes him joyful, what's he intend to do, who are his friends and who are his enemies. You find out what God is like as you read scripture. This is in your notes. Scripture is God's invitation to know him. You know the very first words of inscripturated revelation written down by the hand of God? The very first words scratched on the tablet of stone that came down from Mount Sinai were these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, Israel, meet your God. And everything that was written after those first words scratched on stone tablets by the finger of God Almighty was an introduction to the sovereign God of Israel. They were being introduced to their covenant God. So, Psalm 19. So it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's a chapter in the Bible about the Bible. The psalmist, if you will, goes and sits down on a rock somewhere and just starts thinking, what is it that God's word, God's written word, does for my soul? And 176 verses later, 2,542 words later, hand aching, puts his pen down to praise the God who has revealed himself in scripture. It was so personal. You read Psalm 119, you find reading and interacting with God's written word is so personal for the psalmist. Deeply personal. 
And so ancient Hebrew poets would use a, a device called parallelism. So we're not gonna talk about all of the forms. There are more types of parallelism than the one that we're gonna look at. Um, but here's one, so you see there in your notes. One common device of biblical poets is to write two lines, sometimes three, two lines in which the second line restates or further develops the first. So if it restates it, that's usually called synonymous parallelism. If it further develops, that's often called synthetic parallelism. But leaving kind of some of the geeky terms aside, the idea is one of those forms of parallelism restates it, the other develops it. And so for example, a common example, lead us not into temptation, line number one, but deliver us from evil. It's the same idea, saying it in two two different ways. Don't do this, but do this. But it's the same request. Don't lead me into temptation. Deliver me from evil. It's it's synonymous parallelism. The second restates the first in a fresh way. So just a few examples from this passage in Psalm 119. Look at the relationship between the first and second line in verse seven. Psalm 119, verse seven. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Look at the relationship between those two lines. So in other words, the overflow of truly learning God's righteous judgments is what? I will praise you. I will praise you with an upright heart. You see the relationship. When I learn, I will praise. When I learn your righteous judgments, what happens? Reflexively, I praise you. It's highly relational language about his interaction with scripture. Look at the relationship between God's precepts his, his laws or his instruction and God himself in verse 15. So he's substituting words in the second line for the, line, the, the things that we read in the first line. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. You see how relationally he's tying those things. The second line throws new light on the first by substituting new terms. So you said meditate at first, you say think about the second time. In the first phrase, you're saying your precepts, and the second, you're saying your ways, right? To meditate on God's precepts is to think about what he is like, his ways, his attributes. When we meditate on God's word, we are meditating on God, his ways. We're we're learning who he is. He's coming out of hiding and revealing himself to his people. Look at the effect of understanding scripture in verse 27. Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. The ultimate goal for the psalmist of studying scripture, understanding the meaning of passage after passage after passage in scripture is what? The knowledge of God. Help me to understand it so that I can think about how glorious you are. So I can think deeply, meditate, chew on, mull over the wonders of the God I've come to know in this relationship. Look at the relationship between the two lines in verse 135. So flip over a couple pages. Verse 135. We could look at so many of these. Verse 135. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your statutes. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your statutes. The two are linked. This is parallelism. This is a couplet. These these two requests are one request. These are 
two sides of the same coin. In other words, according to verse 135, there are two ways to ask for God's face to shine on me. One is, the obvious one, make your face shine on your servant. The other surprising one is teach me your statutes. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. In being taught his statutes, his face is shining out from the pages of scripture. You read the Old Testament. I hope that's what you experience. Just like when David's talking about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. I hope when you read the Old Testament, you see God's face shining out from the pages of scripture. You read through the book of Exodus and you just watch God at work. It's theology in action. It's theology in motion. God is breaking the back of slave industry in Egypt. That's what's happening. He's just going boss mode on Pharaoh and his army. You read 1 Samuel, and there's this awesome creator, sovereign God, and what is he doing in the opening pages of 1 Samuel? He's listening to a desperate, weeping, barren woman named Hannah, and she's praying. And Eli the priest says some condescending, snarky remarks about her. God eventually shuts his mouth, and God answers her prayer. That's what God is doing. And then God lets her pray in the opening chapters of that book. He, he lets her write a song. He, he inspires this song, this poem that Hannah writes. And in that song that Hannah writes there, she runs her finger along the deepest thread of the whole story of the entire Bible. There's a sense in which you could lay Hannah's prayer over the whole Bible and everything makes sense. You read Genesis chapter 32. It's God in action. God puts Jacob in a headlock in Genesis 32. And he gets the man to actually tell the truth probably for the first time in his life. What's your name? Right, last time Jacob was asked that question, he said, Esau. This time he says, Jacob. Maybe the first time he moves his lips and he's actually not lying. And God gives him a new name and a broken hip for the rest of his life. It changes the man in a fundamental way. God is in action in scripture. You read Exodus chapter 20, and what are you doing? You're witnessing God marrying Israel, his old covenant people. He's stating his intentions to love and cherish her, and then he's writing her vows and saying, say this back to me. I won't have any other gods besides you. And he gives her the terms of the covenant. He gives her her vows in the form of the Ten Commandments. It's relational. Read the Bible relationally. You read Genesis chapter 1. What do you get to do? You're perched above the created order looking back on as you get to watch God singing creation into existence. Hanging lights across the skies, across the heavens. We've still never seen the end of the lights that he hung in Genesis chapter one. It's an awesome thing to read God's word, to know him, relationally reading it. So, next point, dive into the scriptures because you wanna know, love, and trust the Lord. That's the big purpose. That's the great privilege of reading scripture to know him more, love him more, trust him more, obey him more readily and more gladly. That's the purpose of scripture. So read relationally. Second, read reflectively. If you turn back to Psalm chapter one, 
We're going to be in the Psalms the whole time, so just flip back to Psalm 1. Read reflectively. So, so think about this. Do you just kind of truck through your Bible reading plan without stopping to smell the roses, without stopping to savor it? Maybe you're like my grandpa when he would drive us to Kentucky to see family members. There was no stopping. I mean, you could say, I, I have to go to the bathroom, and I've had to go to the bathroom for an hour. And he's like, too bad. We're going. Like, we're not stopping. We are going all the way to Covington, Kentucky. Or maybe some of us read the Bible that way. It's like Covington, Kentucky. Like, I'm going to check this box one way or the other, and it's going to be checked probably 30 minutes from now. Do we ever stop and reflect on what we're reading? There, there is a better way. Eugene Peterson wrote a book about engaging with God's word. It's entitled, Eat the Book. Eat the Book. And in it, he, one of the great insights there is he points out the Hebrew word for meditate on scripture, and, and he shows that that word meditate that's found in many different places is also found in Isaiah chapter 31. And see if you can guess which word it is, because it's not translated meditate into our English Bible. See if you can guess where that Hebrew word, often translated meditate, shows up in this verse. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. Guess which word is the same word translated meditate in so many passages in the Bible? It's the word growls. The lion growls over his prey. I've told you about my fascination as a child and to this day with documentaries about the Savannah and Africa and the Okavango River and all these things, and I've studied it since I was a kid. And I remember watching, still to this day, my favorite documentary I've ever seen of all the many, many, is called Lions and Hyenas, Eternal Enemies. And it's epic. I, I, still, I still remember the name of the lion who's running in slow motion, in Twidamalia, he who greets with fire. Isn't that, is that not awesome? Right? Doesn't that make you want to watch this? He just comes out from behind the bush like running slow motion and his mane is just like whipping in the wind. It's awesome. So go look it up. Anyway, I think about Entwidamela when I'm looking at this passage. Or you imagine that lion sort of crouching over its, its prey. It has brought this prey in. It has brought it down. It's dead. And he's just gnawing on the bone. And you can just hear its teeth just scraping against the bone. Its claws are just stuck in the hide of this, this beast, right? It's, that's, the, that's the image. That's the metaphor of the person who is meditating on scripture in Psalm chapter one. There's this low rumble as he growls over his prey. You're, you're not just reading a chapter in the Bible, you're growling, <laughs> you're brooding, you're gnawing on the bone of God's word, taking it in, right? That's the same Hebrew word that's used. Look at Psalm one, beginning in verse one. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. So he's getting increasingly comfortable with this counsel, right? He's, he's walking, and then he stops to talk, and then he actually sits, pulls up a chair. Verse two, so not that person. Instead, the happy one is the one whose delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates, same word, same Hebrew word, meditates on it day and night. You read through this psalm, and you see there are two kinds of people. 
this psalm breaks the world into two people. The person who lingers over the counsel of the world, the person who walks and then stands and then pulls up a chair to hear the counsel of this world, or the, the, the creedal commitments of a culture in rebellion against God, and we're just drinking it in, the orthodoxy of a world without God. That's one person, and the other person, in contrast, is drinking deeply from the truth of God's word, meditating, growling, brooding over, gnawing on the truth of God's word. So what is this meditation? Here's the next point in your notes. The goal of biblical meditation is understanding. So it's not to empty our minds. This is not Eastern meditation. It's to fill our minds with truth. It's we focus on God. We focus on his works. We focus on the truth of his word. And so what's the point here? What is Psalm 1 trying to picture us as this believer? The point is, is that there is this stability of life. There is a There's a tree stuck in the ground by streams of water. It's rooted in the ground. It's not weightless. It's not driven like chaff before the wind, which is the other person. No, it's it's weighty. It's it's ballasted. It's tethered down. So there's this stability of life, and there's this fruitfulness. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever it does, it prospers. There's this fruitfulness and stability that comes to the person who delights in the word of God who delights to meditate in the word of God, who searches the pages of scripture, Proverbs 2, 4, as for hidden treasure. We're not just raking leaves, you're getting out the spade, the shovel, you're digging in, there's something down here, there's gold, there's jewels here in God's word. I wanna dig in deep and take in truth. Next point, the Bible doesn't yield its best fruit to the passerby just casually interested or just looking to check a box. Here's, here's the beautiful thing about meditating on Scripture. It, it doesn't mean, I'm not suggesting or implying that to dig into God's Word, every person in this room needs to have an hour a day of uninterrupted time in the Scriptures. You, pen in hand, just coffee here, and just enjoying writing everything down, mulling it over, gnawing on a bone for an hour. That, that might not be the reality of what this looks like for your life. So here's a, a real life type scenario, all right? This is how bad it can sometimes get. So you wake up first thing in the morning, you make yourself a cup of coffee, you sit down, and you're gonna read, here's your plan on paper. Your plan is, I'm gonna read Psalm 3, then I'm going to flip over to the New Testament, get a little crazy. I'm going to read John 3. I'm going to go for two chapters of the Bible this morning. Psalm 3, John 3, it's going to be amazing, right? And so you read Psalm 3, flip over Psalm 3, you read verse 1, you read verse 2, you read verse 3. Here's what verse 3 says, but you, O Lord, and your heart is starting to be warmed. It's not just the coffee. Your heart's warming up. You, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. Verse four, I cry aloud to the Lord and your eight-month-old cries aloud to the Lord. Maybe not to the Lord, maybe just to you or just to anyone, right? And that's just became reality. Your tranquil morning is over. You might not even get the coffee. It might just sit there until the end of the day. That might be the reality. Does that mean you can't meditate on God's word because life intervened and it just kept you from being able to to do this? There's no meditation on God's word? No, you can. When life intervenes, 
when real life breaks in. Here's, here's what can happen. On your way into real life, on your way into the room of the crying child, you can bring with you the one verse you read. <laughs> Psalm 3, verse 3. You're walking up the stairs, you're walking into the room, and you're thinking, you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head, and you gnaw on that truth in every interval of the day you possibly can. As you go off to work, or as you're heading to daycare, or as you stay there at the house and are just piled up with all kinds of things that are going on around you, and you're just thinking about that truth, and you think about it at every interval you possibly can, and then you lay down on your bed that night, hoping to pick, pick up where you left off, and you open Psalm 3, and you start to read the next verse, and in 10 seconds, you fall asleep. That's how bad it can really get, right? What just happened that day? That was Psalm 3, verse 3, meeting the insanity of what normal people call Tuesday. That, that was you planting your tree in the ground next to the streams of water that is Psalm chapter 3, verse 3. It might not have felt awesome, but that was you drinking in, gnawing on the bone of God's promise and God's truth in Scripture. One of the, and that's, by the way, that's one of the blessings of memorizing Scripture. We can bring it with us. And so that just at the right time, when we need it, God's Spirit prompts us. God's Spirit reminds us of something we learned maybe years ago. And into my mind comes, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Or no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful and he'll give Give you a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it or count it all joy when you face various trials of all kinds knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path or be strong and courageous for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Truth from God's word coming singing out from the pages of scripture from your heart which is stored truth up. And like that lion, you're meditating, you're growling, you're sinking your, your retractable claws, if I can take the metaphor that far, sinking that into the hide of Joshua 1, into the hide of Psalm 46, meditating on God's word so that we're bearing fruit for his glory. So read relationally, read reflectively, and third, read receptively. Turn to Psalm 19. <laughs> Read receptively. So, I love these three chapters. Some of my favorite, favorite chapters in the book of Psalms, and they're all related in different ways. In some ways, Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11, is the Cliff Notes version, version of Psalm 119 as a whole. It kind of summarizes in just a few verses the things that God's word does to the reader, the things that God's word does to and in my soul, how God's word changes us. Look at verse seven of Psalm 19. <laughs> the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced 
wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They're more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. What a picture that is. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is abundant reward. He goes on to talk about how, who can know his own heart and find out my hidden faults so that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart are pleasing in your sight. You look at that passage and you see the Bible, friends, is for life. What do you need in life more than wisdom and joy and righteousness and purity and the sweetness of God's counsel and his promises? What do you need more than perseverance and endurance? It's all, this text says, it's all in the word. This is God's multitasker. It renews and revives. It deepens our joy. Paul said in 2 Timothy that the word of God is profitable for every good work. It trains us for every good work. In other words, the Bible wants a word with my soul. The Bible wants a word with my quest for control, my bitter thoughts, my anxious heart. The Bible wants to come and open those places up and get to work on them. God is working in us through his word as we come open, receptive, responsive, humble before God's word. So I, uh, I got pulled over by a cop last Saturday. It wasn't a hugely pleasant experience. I was, um, it was actually last Friday, and I was um, taking my son to go visit Mississippi College for a preview day at Mississippi College, I'm completely unfamiliar with Clinton, Mississippi. I'm driving down the street, as Siri tells me to, and then I come up to the point where I'm supposed to turn left and go into the campus. There's the big sort of uh, welcoming sign, here's the campus, come on in, welcome preview students. The kids are, you know, the students are dancing, they're doing jigs, they're turning, their you know, fingers are arrows, you're saying turn left, turn left, turn left. I'm coming up this way and they're saying turn left, turn left. And Siri's telling me turn right because I asked Siri where a coffee shop was near this place. And so they're dancing, jigging, doing this. Siri's saying go right and I'm just everywhere, right? And so I just decided, okay, I'm going to turn right, but what I didn't notice is there was a stop sign. And as soon as I turned right, I saw that there was a cop car coming, which I thought nothing of. I haven't done anything wrong, and I'm driving up, and next thing you know, I see blue lights in the rearview mirror. And I said, Will, did I do anything wrong? What happened here? And so I pull alongside, and I put the car in park, roll the window down, and I look out my window, as he comes up, which he didn't particularly appreciate. He'll told me, he tells me that in just a moment. So he comes up. <clears throat> he thought I was acting like I didn't know what I had just done and that, the oh, you're looking at me like, I wonder what I did. And so he's, he's enjoying this moment, right? And I'm saying, uh, what, did I, what did I do? And he said, um, what are you here for? And I said, I'm here for a college day at Mississippi College and we've never been here to the area. And so um, what did I do wrong? And he said, you ran through a stop sign and endangered the lives of these kids who were dancing out there. And, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, I did not see the stop sign. He said, yes, you did. And it was one of those moments where I wanted to say, no, no, I really didn't, you know. Um, but I could tell that wasn't getting anywhere with him as he asked for my ID. 
And so I gave him the ID and then he went back and sat and kind of gave me this psychological treatment as he just sort of sat in the car behind me. And then in God's good grace, he came back and with a small lecture, he let me off with a warning. And what I did was I turned, turned to Will and I said, perhaps part of what got me off with a warning is I didn't get snarky. I got low. <laughs> Uh, if he was baiting me, I didn't take the bait. And so I didn't respond in that way. And I was even thinking about that, about God's word yesterday. That we come in low. We don't talk back to scripture. We're not judges over scripture. Scripture judges me. I don't judge it. Scripture critiques me. I don't critique it. You come in low. You don't come in ready to talk back, ready to argue or, or excuse so you see this in your notes. Our goal in reading scripture isn't merely to understand the word, it's to stand under the word. And then we'll skip straight to that next point. Here's another way that we prove that we're reading the Bible receptively. Train yourself to ask, how does the Bible speak to this? Train yourself to ask that. That's what it looks like to be a people of the book. We're convinced that God's word gives us everything we need for life and godliness, and so we walk through life asking the question, how does the Bible speak to this? Am I being wise or foolish? Were those harsh words really excusable, or am I just too proud to own up to this? Am I just too proud to apologize and repent, right? If we read the Bible receptively, we are welcoming God's transforming agenda in our lives as we submit to his word. Whatever's in that next chapter, even if you've never read it before, it's right. It's gonna tell you what is right, what is wise, what is good, what is beautiful. All right, practically speaking, just three things before we head out. Number one, schedule. Set a time. Set a time. So choose a time of day that's most consistent, that can be most consistent for you. Choose a location that can best enable you to be consistent and focused. Encourage you to read both for breath as well as for depth, so sometimes this might help you. Maybe you utilize another method, and so if that's working for you, great. Sometimes I'll use an audio Bible to get more breath, because I can pass through a lot more text of Scripture and just kind of thinking about it. But then I, I like to have at least a chapter that I'm just taking my time in a book, and I'm taking my time slowly progressing through that book to more deeply understand what is this book about. But I'm taking in broad landscapes of scripture because I want to be able to interpret the scripture in light of the rest of the Bible and not just get lost in Genesis chapter two. I want to see it in light of the rest of scripture. So I need both broad coverage and depth as well. But I love what Donald Whitney says in his book, Simplify Your Spiritual Life. It's far better to read less but remember more than to read long and remember nothing. The goal is not just to get through a certain amount of pages but to meet God, I love that, and hear from him. So schedule a time, set a time. Second, <clears throat> schedule and then sidekicks. Get some help. Sidekicks, get some help. So we are blessed to have nearly, nearly endless supplies of resources that can help us grasp the meaning of scripture. We don't need them all, Many of them can be helpful, but we, we do need a few essentials, right? So you need a good translation. 
And I say you need that, and I say that's a resource because you're not translating the Hebrew Bible into our language, yourself. You're not just taking those original scripts and just copying it over in most cases, right? So you need a good translation. If, if God's grace through the crazy study hours of men and women who dedicated their lives to learning ancient languages, if that didn't happen, when you woke up to read Psalm 15 this morning, you would have seen this. Aren't you grateful for scholars, right? Aren't you grateful for people who learned ancient Hebrew so that they can make sense of whatever that says, right? So we're blessed with that. And so get yourself a good translation, a faithful translation. I, I've often u- been using here the, the Christian Standard Bible. It's one among many faithful translations. The English Standard Version is well-trodden, wonderful translation. So use one of those. There are a number of others. Get yourself a good copy of God's Word that you'll be able to use for years to come. So that's one resource. A second resource that can be very helpful is a good study Bible. So a good study Bible. It doesn't, that, by the way, doesn't have to match the translation of your choice. You can enjoy reading, as I do, the Christian Standard Bible and then benefit from the ESV Study Bible or vice versa or a number of others. The Zondervan Study Bible is great. NIV Study Bible is great. So pick a good study Bible and use that as a companion resource. And so the benefit of a good study Bible is at least twofold. A couple of things. Number one, the introductions to the books of the Bible are super helpful. So you get in a quick summary of two, three, four pages who wrote the book. You you don't necessarily have access to that in every book of the Bible. Who actually wrote this? When? When was this approximately written? What's the style of the writing? What's the audience to whom this person is writing? What's the occasion? What prompted the person to write this to that audience? What are some of the primary themes that I can look for as I read through this book? So introductions to books of the Bible can help us hear the text as the original audience would have heard it. So that helps us with understanding. Second, another reason is it can help with challenging thorny passages or verses in that book of the Bible. Now, let me just say first, I would encourage you to wrestle with those thorny passages yourself first. Try to make observations in the context. Is there some way in which the context of this passage answers the question of what I'm looking for here? If there's no way to think about that in light of the rest of Scripture or in light of the context itself, get some help. Just ask for, ask for help. And so you can use those study resources. All right, there are lots of study aids we could, we could talk about, but I'll just mention one more. Fellow Christians. Sidekicks. Don't study in isolation. You don't need to. You, you're not wired for that. We're, we're meant to study in community. We're meant to learn in community. Talk to your pastors. Talk to mature Christian believers. Talk to your small group leader. We're not in this alone. We can learn from one another. And so that's why, by the way, commentaries aren't bad either. So that's, that's part of the community of faith. Some alive and well, some dead and gone. And we get to sit down and hear from them. What did you get out of this 300 years ago when you were studying this passage of Scripture? This is the community of faith. We're learning, we're hearing, we're considering together. So schedule, sidekicks, sight lines. Prioritize three looks. Three looks. And we'll take these one at a time quickly. Look at the text. Look at the text. And so there are a lot of different ways that we could go about doing this, but I'll just offer you three pictures, three word pictures. Light bulb, a question mark, and an arrow. 
a light bulb, a question mark, and an arrow. So light bulb is read the passage and ask what seems to be the meaning what does this author seem to be driving at? Are there words that keep getting repeated? Is that pointing me to the significance of what's being said? What stands out? So there's the light bulb. Be asking that question, and you're interacting deeply with God's word. Second, question mark. What do I not understand? Is there anything else in this passage that would clear that up? Is there anything in other parts of the Bible that I've read that would shed light on this question that I have in this particular verse? There again, if you can't break through, that might be a place to pull out that study Bible and consider what another person has said about it or call a mature friend in Christ and say, have you read this verse? What on earth does this mean? Can you help me understand what this might mean? And then, and then arrow. So where does this passage want to change me? Where does this passage want to transform my life? What change begins in my life when I start believing the truth that's in this chapter of the Bible? And we'll come back to that in just a second. So look at the text. Second, look through the text. Look through the text. So we can read the Bible like the Pharisees. Jesus said, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have life, but you refuse to come to me that you might have life. So the scriptures are pointing beyond themselves to the incarnate word, to Jesus himself. And so we can go to the Bible like Martha rather than Mary. We can go to, for the to-do list. We can go saying, oh, where's the apron? Rather than sitting at the feet of Christ, listening to the Savior, hearing, believing, trusting him more. And so look for that central story of the gospel. The, the, the word of God has a central story. It's not just the disconnected fables or moral tales or even true stories from history. It has a center point. It has, it has the central storyline. The message is this, that God, the God who is infinitely holy, the God who is infinitely worthy of our worship, happens to be the God against whom we have sinned. We've broken his law, we've rebelled against him, we've made a grab for the throne that belongs to him alone. And we deserve to be judged, but instead of pouring out his judgment, he sent his son Jesus to the cross to pay for my sins, to be my substitute, to hang in my place. And so he sent his son as a substitute for sinners to die on the cross for us, to rise again in our place, so that, not to coin a phrase, whoever believes in him will have everlasting life, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Every story in the Bible whispers that bigger story. Every story in some ways pointing to that story. To be a Christian, is it's not just to know the story of Jesus, it's to be swept up into the story of Jesus. It's to turn from my sin, to turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus Christ, the only Savior that God has sent. If you've never believed in Christ, then don't hear anything else that I said and hear that. Trust in the one Savior God has provided. Believe on him Today, that's our response to the good news of what God has done. There is, by the way, there is no connecting with God in Scripture apart from faith in Jesus. That's where it all has to begin. There's no Scripture reading and benefiting and prayer and church. None of that works. Jesus said, I'm the door. You want to get to the Father, you come through me. There's no other way. But then, having believed in Christ, we come to the Word asking the question, where is he? Where is the promised one? Where is the Messiah? How does this passage connect to Christ? And there might be many ways that the passage connects to Christ. One passage might connect 
to the gospel story implicitly. It might connect implicitly by showing me what I would be apart from God's grace, what I'm capable of apart from God's grace. That's in a way gesturing in the direction of Christ and his work on the cross. Another passage that you're reading through, it might speak directly about the coming of Messiah, like the passages that we studied in the month of December. Another passage might point to effects of the gospel on those who are changed and on those who believe, like the Beatitudes, peacemakers and merciful and pure in heart. That's what the gospel does when it gets in on the inside. Right? So there is always a connection to Christ. There's always a connection to the gospel. So ask questions like, how does this passage whisper grace? How does this passage whisper my need for Christ? How does it point to Jesus as the hero of the story of the Bible? So look at the text, look through the text, and finally let the text look at you. Let the text look at you. And that's what the arrow was all about. So ask questions like, is there, is there a particular shape that faith and repentance takes in this passage? What would that look like in my life? How does this passage beckon me to worship, nurture, mission, to loving Jesus, growing in Jesus, making disciples? How does it push me to refocus my life on the glory of God? How does it push me to strengthen others in faith? How does it push me out from my comfort zone to share Christ with others and those who haven't heard? We're asking these questions. So, Christian friend, just look, as we close, think about what a gift God's word is that we have his written, authoritative, inerrant, clear, sufficient word. Biblical writers, you just think about the way that biblical writers speak about God's word. It's fire, it's a hammer that breaks hard places, shatters rock, Jeremiah said. It's food that sustains and nourishes us. It's fuel for hope in Romans chapter 15. It's milk that enables us to grow in 1 Peter chapter two. It's water that cleanses us in Ephesians chapter five. It's sweeter than honey, it's better than gold, Psalm 19. It's a sword, Ephesians six, a seed, 1 Peter one, a light, Psalm 119. Friend, you come to the pages of Scripture to meet God. You come to the pages of Scripture ultimately to be awed by his glory in chapters like Isaiah 6, to be comforted by the promises of his grace in chapters like Romans 8, to see him dance over you with joy in passages like Zephaniah chapter three. Friend, the Bible is not first and foremost a to-do list, a set of chores for believers. The Bible is more than anything God's resume. It's God's autobiography of the one true living God, glorious in holiness, distant yet near, terrifying yet merciful, father of lights, friend of sinners. All of that is here. God is revealing this. You read this book and feel deep in your bones the truth that the prophets have said for centuries. There is no one like the Lord. Neither is there any rock like our God. Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Who is like the Lord. Read the Bible and come away feeling that in your bones. Come and behold the glory of God in the pages of Scripture through the work of His Spirit. Let's pray.